Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, with a message titled, Qualified to Lead, Part 2. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, if you've been following my study on this passage, you might have wondered why I've been so painstakingly slow at going through this passage. And my answer is, this is so very important. The quality of Christian leaders, as well as the response of God's people to their leaders, is imperative to the ongoing life and vitality of the church. In the passage before us, Paul is assuming that elders have been examined. In the case of 1 Timothy, it is Paul's representative, Timothy, whom we assume is doing the examining. He stands as Paul's representative, that is, Timothy, who has been trained by Paul, is to oversee the process, ensuring that Paul's instruction in the elder selection process is being carried out as he has been directed. Christian denominations today can be divided into congregational churches and those that are led by the denomination. Well, a congregational church is a church in which the congregation is given the power to select their leaders. See, in this case, when a pastor or elder is chosen, the congregation will do the choosing. Other denominations believe that this choice should be overseen by the leaders of the denomination. Well, it's not my intention here to compare those different systems, but what I wish to say is that 1 Timothy demands that the spiritual leaders in the congregation not be chosen for their giftedness nor their popularity, nor the desperation of a church just to get someone but rather they be chosen on the basis of the list of qualifications we find in this text. And so today, all I want to do is to go over the list that Paul gives us and ask that God's people pay attention. Now, these are the kind of people that should be set over you as spiritual leaders in your congregation. Elders are called upon to be examples to the rest of us as to what mature Christianity looks like. We should be able to follow their example safely, for it will lead us to walk as God wants us to walk. See, that's what Paul was after when he wrote this chapter in the Bible. He knew that in Ephesus, unqualified leaders had led many in the church to hold the role of elder in low esteem. He knew that the way out was to check qualifications, place men of honor in the office of elder. Let's then unlock the qualifications of godly Christian leaders. What we have before us is a list of 14 qualifications. And I could go over them one by one, giving 14 separate points to remember. But as you know, the mind is going to struggle to remember them all. 
And so for the sake of remembering them, I'm going to divide them into six categories. Now, lest you think it has nothing to do with the, you know, the Christian who doesn't seek leadership, please remember two things. Remember that your spiritual progress is dependent on the leaders that God sets over all of us. Remember also the words of Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's to say, the leaders God puts over us provide a model for all of us. What we learn in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 is applicable to all of us. Okay, let's look at those six categories for spiritual maturity. Category number one. The inner and outer life of a Christian leader is to be consistent. Now, I know that none of us can look inside anyone else's heart. We can't tell the hidden inner thoughts that are known by God alone. In fact, Jesus went even so far as to warn us not to judge the motivations of anyone's actions. Yet we can judge the outer life and we can ask, is the outer life consistent with the inner life that should be beyond reproach? Notice the four tests that Paul gives us. The first may surprise us, for it simply says that the overseer must be the husband of one wife. But in the Greek, this literally means he must be a one-woman man. It means so much more than he must not be a polygamist. It means that his sexual desires are channeled in a godly way, and that he knows how to have and to hold and to love and to cherish one woman and one woman alone. But how can you tell? Easy, you can tell. You know, a man might have a wandering eye. And you know, men, when a very attractive woman meets your eye, you don't have to look a second time. It's not the law of gravity. You can tell a man who's not a one-woman man by the secret flirting, the sexual misdeeds, the affair that's happened, the fact that he complains about his wife in public and doesn't honor her or exalt her and wear his wedding ring proudly. You can tell whether the outer life matches the inner life. The next three words, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, those are all words that speak about how a man handles himself in public. They mean that a man is free from rash actions. He's restrained. It means that he's moderate, and he knows how to set the priorities in his life and to keep them. It means he has flawless manners, he's well-behaved, and that his outward life looks seemly and desirable. Why would you want an elder who embarrasses you in public? You say, but can we tell what's happening on the inside? Well, no, not entirely. But if someone lacks these virtues, it does indicate that something is wrong inside. There's a disconnect between what they say is going on in themselves and what is seen on the outside. Elders must be men whose inner and outer life is consistent. You know, it is for this reason that some of us like to say there's a kind of decorum or a demeanor that accompanies Christian leadership. Years ago, I remember a pastor who spoke about as graphically as one could about the sexual relation he had with his own wife. The sober-mindedness that goes along with Christian ministry was lacking in him. You know, he excited not obedience to Christ, but fascination with sensuality. And so we say that the way in which a man handles himself must be there so as to give evidence of a consistent theme between his inner and outer life. So second, Paul then argues that the Christian overseer must be competent in his calling. See, we all want leaders who know what they're doing. But what's a leader to do? Now, If we handed out a paper today and we were to ask everyone, what should a leader do? I wonder what we would jointly say. 
perhaps all of us would come up with quite a list. You know, some would say a preacher and others an executive and still others a counselor and so on. But thankfully, this is not about our wishes, but about God's. See, I find it fascinating and even remarkable that Paul only mentions two things. Here's the first of them. He wants him to be hospitable. We find that in verse 2. Now, just to be clear, the situation then was quite different than what we experience today. In the time of Paul, most hotels or motels were dreadful places. They were havens for thieves and outlaws and prostitutes. They were almost always seedy places where no believer would go. And so, if you were a traveling evangelist or teacher or other church worker that went from church to church, it was necessary that they be put up in homes. And Paul says the job of a leader is to put these people up. But what does that mean for us? At the very least, a job description for the leader is that the leader is welcoming of strangers, of people who are new, of people who haven't found their way into the center of the life of the church. Good leaders provide the basis for friendship and fellowship, and they lead the way in showcasing what that looks like. Look at it this way. There are those people, when they have someone over, you know, those people are always among their established circle of friends. You know, still others make sure that the people that they have over provide them with some benefit. They're either the class of person they'd like to identify with, or in some way that person is helping them advance their own agenda. So it's self-serving. But godly leaders always have an open circle of friends in which anyone can find their way in. And so overseers have a job description, don't they? Their job is to make all manner of people feel at home. And that's why when we look for elders, we might want to look for those who regularly have people over or who host a Bible study group or who have a large, ever-increasing circle of people that they connect with. It is important that leaders are seen as warm and welcoming. They encourage fellowship and friendship, and so in the end, the church as a whole that views their leaders will also become a warm and welcoming place. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Alafagain's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. The second job description that Paul assigns to overseers is that all elders must be able to teach. It doesn't mean that all of them preach because as we will see in 1 Timothy 5.17, some elders are given the task of being full-time preachers and teachers and are to be remunerated for that. But all elders must be teachers in that they must be competent in three areas. 
One, they must understand the depths of Christian doctrine. They must be men of the word who know, read, study, and love scripture. Two, they must be able to explain Christian doctrine to those who ask. And three, they must be able to oppose error and correct false teaching. And that's exactly what Paul says in Titus 1 verse 9. He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, especially for those elders whose central task is preaching and teaching. I would argue that they should have shown a great deal of competence in the scriptures. I know of one denominational ordination board that grills candidates on scriptural knowledge. They demand without a Bible in hand that the candidate can outline by memory Books like Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, one of the Synoptic Gospels, the book of John, and the book of Romans. You know, I asked about that, and I was told, well, why would you entrust anyone in the pulpit who's not demonstrated mastery in the Scripture? Many others want to show some kind of knowledge in the original languages, knowledge of the great doctrines of the faith, and evidence that the person has read the entire Scripture through not once, but many, many times. And so we can see that what a Christian leader must do is twofold. They must inspire fellowship, and they must teach with clear insight into the Scripture. So that elders must have a consistent inner and outer life. They must be competent in their calling. Third, the overseer must be free from besetting sins. Now, perhaps some of you don't know what a besetting sin is. You know, we all sin, but a besetting sin is that sin that an individual continues to repeat over and over again against their will in which they gain no victory. Now, there are any number of those kinds of sins, but let's look at two of them found in this text. The first deals with the matter of addictions. Paul specifically mentions the sin of drunkenness. And it must be said that the Bible nowhere forbids the use of alcohol, but it everywhere condemns drunkenness. Now, here's where we all get into gray areas. When is an individual actually drunk? So let me ask a question. In your use of alcohol, Have you ever had so much that if you were to get behind the wheel of your car and pulled over and given a breathalyzer, would you fail the test? Now, here's what should be said of every mature believer. They never have too much. Never. Not ever. I want to add something here that is my opinion, and it's not from the Scripture, but if you completely abstain from alcohol, you'll never struggle with the addiction to alcohol. The second item that Paul mentions now moves beyond addictions to the issue of anger. He uses three words, not violent, means that the man's not a striker, he never uses his fists. Not quarrelsome, means that one rarely sees the elder getting into arguments. You see, the truth is that so many of us are marked by the conflicts we have. You know, we even pride ourselves with never letting anyone get the better of us, and we're known for calling people to account, and the amount of disputes we've had are numerous. When Paul says that the elder must be gentle, He doesn't mean the elder's a pushover. He is a strong man who can use reason, who seeks reconciliation, who keeps disputes small and looks for ways to bring healing rather than confrontation. Anger is a besetting sin, and for some it's like a drug. Elders are not to be chosen from such men. Now, I know that up till now I've only been using masculine pronouns when speaking of elders and overseers, and some of you may take exception to that, but the next qualification explains why Paul only wants male elders, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, 
keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So here's the fourth qualification. He's an exemplary family man. The entire point of church leadership is that leadership in the church arises out of and reflects leadership in the home. The kind of leadership that happens in the home is a model for the church. And as husbands are called to lead their homes, so elders are called to lead their church. They are husbands and fathers. This, of course, leads to all sorts of questions. One is, must elders be married? Well, before we run ahead of ourselves and say, look, not even the apostle Paul was married, please hear me out. Paul had been a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, and we know that Jewish law forbade anyone from serving as a priest or a member of the Sanhedrin unless they were married. So Paul was married and most likely either became a widower or that his wife left him on account of his faith. And when that happened, and we don't know, but it's simply not true to say that he was never married. So should elders be married men? Now, I don't have a clear statement from Scripture. And furthermore, Jesus, our Lord, was not married. See, I feel compelled to say that there will always be some exceptions, but as a general rule, overseers are to be married men whose leadership in the home has been observed. They are men who've taught their children the truths of the faith. Listen to what Paul says to the elders in Titus 1, verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, their ability to lead in the home inspires great confidence that they can lead in the church. You see, it was the Puritans who said, every family is a little church. And men, God has called you to lead not by lording it over your wife and kids, but by being the priest in the home, the one who instructs the kids in the ways of God and who watches over their spiritual development and sees them grow. Titus even goes as far as to say that the elder's children must be believers. Fifth, the overseer must be a mature believer. Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, that doesn't mean that the elder can't be young, for we know that Timothy was young. It means they must be mature in their faith. You know, one way to test maturity has to do with, you know, the characteristic of humility. You know, here's what can happen. When you put a new believer into leadership, they begin to let it get to their heads. You see, Satan fell because he was filled with pride. And many a leader, when allowed to attain to a noble task, allows his head to be filled with pride and no longer leads because of the love of Christ or the love for people, but because the position fascinates him. And finally, verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, some of us may read this and wonder how this can be a requirement of eldership. After all, believers in that day were often persecuted for their faith. How can outsiders and unbelievers determine who becomes an elder? It was the great 4th century preacher, John Chrysostom. He pointed out that although the apostles were often persecuted, they, like Daniel, were never brought up on morals charges. Listen to what he says. For why did not one say of the apostles that they are fornicators, unclean, or covetous persons, but that they were deceivers, which relates to their preaching only? Must it not be that their lives were irreproachable? That brings us right back to where we began. Paul began this list of the qualities of the elder by saying that they must be above reproach 
and ends by talking about how non-Christians in the watching world assess the Christian leader. And so sixth, the overseer has a good reputation in the wider community. You know, as Paul ends this section, he speaks about a great danger. Satan seeks to disgrace Christian leaders, and when he disgraces them, he also disgraces the entire church. And in this way, he also brings the gospel message into disgrace so that the watching world no longer pays attention. How horrible it is when the deep secrets of Christian elders, pastors, leaders are exposed, and with it, the gospel becomes maligned. On the other hand, isn't it wonderful to be led by leaders who reflect the mind of Christ? Now, I have one final thing that I want to add. You know, it is true that no one who seeks the office of an overseer would look at this list and say, you know, it is clear that I meet all of these qualifications. Everyone knows they fall short. It's also important for congregations when looking at their own leaders not to pick them apart using these words. Rather, we continue to hold forth a model of individuals who are striving to become this and that through their lives, that is the lives of the leaders, we see an example that all of us can follow. Thanks for your message today, John. You know, can I ask you, is it possible that our expectations of pastors are, are just sometimes unrealistic? Uh, they can be, and, and clearly they are. Um, but I think it's not that we all together as the entire church have one unrealistic expectation. I think it's the varied expectations that we have. One person looking forward to this and somebody else looking forward to that. And then ultimately we just agree that we just don't like the guy anymore. Um, that can be a great problem. Um, and, and that's why it's important for us to get back to the scripture and ask, so what are those you know, character qualifications that are required and to understand them in such a way that it's possible for a person to be that. I mean, don't make them so high, exactly as you've said, that you know nobody can attain to that save for Jesus. Um, and on the other hand, we need to recognize that, you know, yes, people sin, but we need to also know the difference between a sin that disqualifies someone and a sin that simply needs to be repented of and uh, and and worked at and uh, God's people banding together. So uh, these are some of the things that we need to talk about in the church. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. As we do every October, this year we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Newfeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe, featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back to the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars, and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. 
Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each.